everyone, welcome to Morning Matcha. I'm super excited to share with you today's guest, someone who I personally wanted to talk to for a little while now. Her name is Christy Harrison, and she's an anti-diet registered dietitian and author of a forthcoming book, Anti-Diet. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. I I kind of like learned about you, I think, through my friend, um, Katie Dale Baum. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, have you guys done a podcast together? or So many podcasts oh, together. Oh, fun. She okay. was on the first season of my podcast, or no, the second season of my podcast. We did like a podcast swap back in the day in 2014 when podcasts were brand new and we'd already been going strong for a year each yeah. of us. So. Um, and then just like, yeah, many podcasts of each other's over the years. Cool. Well, yeah. yeah, I remember her posting about your book and I was like, what? This is like exactly what I'm talking about. This is what I'm going through. This is amazing. I want everyone to have access to this information. And I just immediately fell in love and so excited to be here in New York with you. So I just kind of want to learn more about you first. Like what brought you here? What's your background? before getting into all the anti-diet stuff. Yeah, so my background's very winding. I uh, started my career as a journalist, and I'm actually from California, from the Bay Area, and I went to school out there, and after school I was like looking for jobs as a journalist in California. There was really nothing in the Bay Area to be found. I filled in for someone on maternity leave, and then she came back, and I was like, okay then, I guess I'm gonna freelance. Yeah. Um, And there are tons of journalism jobs out here. This is kind of where magazines are, and that's what I wanted to do, so I moved to New York. At the same time, I was struggling with my own disordered eating. I was, uh, it was sort of proto-wellness back then. This was like 2003, 2004, so it wasn't the wellness culture that it is today, but I got into like, Michael Pollan, Mary Nessel, Eric Schlosser, all the sort of like real food advocates Mm -hmm. and started cutting things out of my diet. I also got really obsessed with gluten and became gluten-free and experimented with other food restrictions and eliminations and just went down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And I got, you know, no surprise, worse and worse symptoms that I now realize were due to the disordered eating, but that I attributed to, oh my God, I'm allergic to all these foods. I'm intolerant to all these foods. I need to cut out more. So I think that's what the wellness, you know, what I've come to call the wellness diet that's what it really does to us is it makes us think if we're still having problems and we're doing already doing some things that it's telling us to do the problem is not the wellness diet the problem is we need to cut out more food yeah it's not enough and you need to keep going exactly so I kept going and going and I ended up you know restricting and binging losing my period having um, I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis which runs in my family but maybe was triggered by that I, I don't know if it would have come on and you know, the age that it did otherwise. Um, And I had all kinds of other drama around my health that just, you know, unexplained health conditions that I blamed on food. And as a journalist, I was sort of, I specialized in food and nutrition and health because Mm -hmm. that's what I was obsessed with. I made those things my beat and I kind of had license to obsessively research them all day long. So I wrote uh, several articles about gluten-free diets I wrote about organic food and you know the pesticides in foods and all the problems with agriculture, you know, as it is, and just kind of uh, became obsessed with all that research and you know, but got praised for it. Got got bylines, got story assignments, mm-hmm. got hired at magazines and all this stuff. So it was really reinforced. Yeah, yeah, and but also silently, I was struggling, I was suffering, and nobody really recognized that. And in mm-hmm. fact, I mean. I ended up working at Gourmet Magazine, which I think was really a blessing because that it's a foodie magazine. Yeah. And I was 
surrounded by a lot of people who loved food and had a pretty positive relationship with food. And that started to break down some of my lingering food rules. I also had dated a guy who was a foodie, although he taught me that term was really uncool, but I still don't know a term to like say yeah. to describe what that is. So, you know, kind of a guy who's obsessed with food adventures and eating different kinds of food. And that had really helped me open stop up your the, world. Yeah, stop mm-hmm. the restricting as much and over-exercising and all that. But I was still secretly doing some of those things. And, you know, it wasn't until I worked at Gourmet that I started to really be forced to like practice every day, um, kind of allowance with food and still was super disordered still was very much caught up in the diet mindset what I now know is the diet mentality or internalized diet culture beliefs and so um, gourmet ended up folding in 2009 and I sort of heard rumblings that that was happened that was going to happen and I decided to go back to school to become a nutritionist a dietitian at that point because I wanted something a little more stable in my life than journalism and I also wanted to sort of unlock the code of how can I finally be healthy How can I help end the so-called obesity epidemic that I really believed in at the time that I now know is really a... a, Deprivation. Yeah, exactly. And and also, like, weight stigma. Basically, calling it an obesity epidemic is weight stigmatizing. It's harmful. It's a moral panic, as some of my colleagues call it, not an actual public health crisis. But at the time, I thought, you know, that's what I was going to do. So I went and got my Master's of Public Health Nutrition, my dietitian's license, and then I started to work in the field first in um, city like uh, city agencies, basically, the City Department of Health. I did a lot of like community nutrition programs um, and ho- worked in hospitals and uh, homeless shelters and things like that. And so kind of a, you know, got a sense of the food environment from that perspective, yeah. um, but was really missing that sense of like culture, you know, food culture, connection with food, people's relationships with food. And having had such a messed up relationship with food of my own, I knew that that was something I was interested in writing about and covering, and so I started a podcast. Um, in 2013, I started my podcast, Food Psych. I had actually been working on a book proposal about those topics in 2010 and sort of wasn't able to get it together, I think because I was still healing from yeah. the end of my own issues, but I started the research then. I started to research intuitive eating, um, kind of the early research on the anti-diet movement was was there in my research for the book. And so then that ended up turning into the podcast. And so with the podcast, I started to do work in the disordered eating field. I got experienced in disordered eating and developed expertise in intuitive eating, um, healing my own relationship with food along the way through intuitive eating, actually. That's what Um, When I discovered intuitive eating in 2010, that's what started to heal my own relationship with food. Because I'd been an intuitive eater before all the disorder started in college. And so it it was actually relatively easy for me to click back into that. And I had the privilege of being able to do that too because I didn't have as much trauma of diet culture as I see from some people that I work with. Um, I think largely due to thin privilege, white privilege, economic privilege, all these different privileges that I have that sort of protected me from being traumatized by diet culture as much as people in larger bodies often are, or people in other circumstances are. Wow, so much information. Thank (laughs) you. I mean, uh, thank you for being so open about your own personal journey, too. Um, You mentioned in there that your own disordered eating kind of started in college. Yeah. When would you say, um, like, what would you say triggered that? Yeah, so I went and studied abroad in Paris my junior year of college, and I change birth control pills. I ended up like just getting a bunch of free samples from my doctor of a different birth control pill that I had been on. She's like, here's a year's worth, go take it to France. And I started taking it and it caused 
weight gain as a side effect, but also all sorts of other symptoms. And I now realized that it was interacting with a hormonal condition that I have. And so, you know, had triggered that condition. But at the time I didn't know that. I was just like, what's happening to me? I'm like splitting my pants. I also had like acne and just oh other gosh. symptoms that were, were really coming on suddenly. And so instead of understanding that it was related to the pill or suspecting that, I did what most people who are raised in diet culture do when they can't button their pants anymore. I went on a diet. Mm -hmm. And in France, you know, they say that <laughs> French women are like so blasé with yeah. food and just like effortlessly thin. That's bullshit, yeah. honestly. Like that is, I don't know if I can swear here. Yeah. But, no, uh, you know, it's <laughs> total bullshit. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was very diety. It was a total diet culture. And, you know, people would like give me advice on what to do to lose weight and oh, no. comment on my weight. Like random people? I mean, people I knew yeah. friends and stuff, but uh, or friends of friends, sometimes not all, always you know, solicited. Um, but That's it was, terrible. Yeah, it was really frustrating and just, you know, I had never experienced anything like it. Talk about thin privilege, right? I had yeah. never gained weight. I had never known what that was like. And so I started trying to lose weight. I started restricting my food, even though I was terribly hungry, another side effect of that birth control pill. Yeah. Um, I started, you know, cutting out different types of foods that I thought were bad and gosh, doing that in Paris, <sighs> I can't imagine. It was so sad. I, yeah. was, I was really missing out on a lot. And then I came home, that was like my second semester of junior year that I kind of like got serious about it because mm -hmm. I hadn't even realized what was going on until, you know, my clothes stopped fitting. And then I came home and sort of double down on all the food restrictions and that's also when Atkins was in full boom like I think Paris hadn't quite gotten it yet but I came home and was like oh everybody's doing this Atkins thing I'm gonna just dive right in and go low carb and was also trying to count calories at the same time but like which I mean Atkins basically is like a calorie restricted diet but it's also a low carb diet so mm -hmm. I was doing that I was sort of doing my own DIY version of that because I was also trying to be gluten free at a certain point like I started to develop all the symptoms of, you know, thyroid issues, period issues, etc. And a family friend who was into alternative medicine was like, oh, have you looked into gluten? You might have celiac disease. Maybe that's what's going on. So then you're like, and okay, like, that's what I have. And I went and got tested and the doctors were like, no, you don't have it. You don't have the gene for it. You know, but I was like reading all these message boards where people are like, it took me forever to get diagnosed and it never showed up on, you know, symptom. like it never showed up on, um, panels from an allergist, but I did it anyway. I went gluten-free myself and my symptoms got so much better. And so I was like, I'm doing that. Yeah. Without, you know, cause at the time, I mean, in college I, met, I majored in rhetoric and French literature. I did not major in nutrition. I didn't have any sort of scientific background really that came later when I went to grad school. So I was just like buying all of that stuff hook, line and sinker without knowing how to read the research, without knowing how to understand the science or lack thereof behind these gluten-free diets. Mm -hmm. And so I just, you know, started down that rabbit hole and then no one could really convince me otherwise. Even doctors, even, you know, smart friends that I talked to who reported on science, who knew science journalism. I actually had a friend say, you know, I think, what about like if you started eating more? What if, you know, do you yeah. think some of your issues might be related to like how restrictive you are with food? And I was like, Oh, please. <laughs> like, yeah. You're like, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. How can that possibly make sense? I have, a, like, a very similar story, actually. I just, like, mm -hmm. kept going and going and took a, my doctor to just say, who is, like, a functional medicine mm -hmm. doctor and all this, who was like, go home and eat. Like, wow. I just want you to go home and eat everything. I know I want you to just, like, forget everything you've learned because it's, you know, it's so difficult. You're, like, brainwashing yourself, essentially, just, like, reading and... 
I don't know about you, but for me, I started feeling better before I started feeling worse, which I think is what made me keep going. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if you had that experience. I totally did. Yeah. And now I know it's something called the nocebo effect, which is like when you think something is hurting you, you will have symptoms from that thing. Like if you think gluten is harmful, you'll have symptoms when you eat gluten and you'll feel better when you take it away. And so that's, I think, a lot of what causes people to think that because there's all this information out there in the zeitgeist and more and more as time goes on, I think, that makes people think they're allergic or intolerant to these foods. And so, yeah, they take it away and it's like, oh, relief. Yeah. And then actually the symptoms just come back because that sort of psychological, you know, that I mean, it can be very powerful. The nocebo effect can last, but it can also go away in the face of like mounting other symptoms. And Are you saying nocebo or placebo? So nocebo, it's the opposite of the placebo in the sense that like the placebo effect is you take something that doesn't have any effect, but you think it makes you feel better. Yeah. This is you take something that doesn't have any effect, but you think it makes you feel worse, yeah. like gluten or yeah. dairy or whatever, you know, people are self-diagnosing with. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. So now there's a term for it. That makes yeah. so much sense. Did you feel like your education, getting your grad, uh, going to grad school, that helped you? Or was it post-grad school when you started interviewing people and kind of getting into intuitive eating? And so that was when you really kind of... Like, what did you learn in grad school? I think grad school helped me to some extent to feel a little less um, fearful about particular types of foods because the, you know, for all its problems, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics um, curriculum really does have this all foods fit model and yeah. doesn't demonize particular foods. So that was helpful in terms of like letting go of the fears about gluten, about carbs, um, but there is some, and there was even at the time, some sort of fears about processed food creeping into the mix. And especially where I went at NYU is actually where Marion Nessel teaches. She's the chair, was the chair of the department, um, and founded the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health. So that idea of like the food system and certain foods, you know, processed foods being the ones to demonize was kind of in the zeitgeist there. So it, it actually kind of made that part worse for me. Okay. Um, you know, it wasn't like, it, it's like the all foods fit model of like, you can have carbs, you can have um, fats, you can have protein, you can have all the, you know, different types of foods you want. But then there's this other piece of like, be careful where your food comes from. Mm -hmm. So that was, it was complicated. It was a double edged sword. And I also, um, they teach you to like, determine people's ideal body weight in mm -hmm. school for nutrition. And oh, yeah. which is like, horrible because yeah. I had to like weigh and measure myself and compare myself to ideal body weight charts which are I mean our professor said like these are out, these are considered outdated these are sort of just like a ballpark estimate but they're usually on the low side but mine was like it happened to be the number that it spit out that was like my ideal weight was my lowest weight in my eating disorder and so that's why I was like I just panicked you know mm -hmm. at first I was like do I need to go back there? Do I need to do that stuff again? That's the only way I've been able to be that at that low of a weight for in my adult life. And then I, you know, pondered it for a couple of days and realized like that is ridiculous because, you know, I, I had been learning up until that point that it's not healthy to be restrictive like that. It's, you know, my school school for nutrition also was really helpful in that regard of like you need to have 
sort of a minimum amount of calories to function, minimum amount of carbs to function. And so I knew enough to know, like, okay, what I was doing before wasn't healthy. And, and, and probably emotionally, like, yeah. if you're so stressed about it, right, then how can that be healthy? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's not what I learned in school. That's what I learned later. But, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, you know, a huge part of it, too. So I just decided at that point I was going to drop the scale. I was going to, st- like, I deleted so my great. calorie tracking apps. I gave away my scale. Now I would smash it. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> I gave it to Goodwill or something and um, just, you know, stopped following any of that stuff. And I think that was really helpful. So I was challenged, I was triggered, you know, sort of the eating disorder threatened to pull me back in. And then I I said no and walked away. And shortly thereafter, I discovered the book Intuitive Eating because I was researching my my book that never ended up going anywhere, the first book that I was Mm -hmm. researching, which sort of informed the book that I now have written. So it all sort of comes full circle. Wow, I'm so happy you're doing this work. So then you started doing the podcast. Did you start your private practice at that time as well? About the same time, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, immediately, because I had already had this first career as a journalist and worked for other people for many years, but also had worked as a freelance journalist and had my own business that way. I was like, I am ready to be done working for other people. I was ready to go into private practice. And when I was doing my training as a dietitian, I luckily got to work with um, eating disorder treatment centers and also to counsel some people in a clinical setting, you know, where they didn't have an eating disorder specialist on staff. And Mm -hmm. so I became kind of the go-to for people with eating disorders. And so that gave me the experience where I was like, you know, I'm going to just open my private practice and specialize in eating disorders. Would you say that um, eating disorders happen to a certain class of people? I don't think there's really um, any class or ethnic or you know demographic differences in who actually gets them. I think there is definitely difference. There are definitely major differences in who gets diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So the people that um, are stereotypically considered to be people who suffer from eating disorders are usually thin, um, pretty emaciated, white you know, economically um, privileged people, right? And usually female, usually young as well. So, but we know from the research that there are significant rates of eating disorders and disordered eating, which is like subclinical rates of disordered behaviors with food where, you know, maybe you're not doing it X number of times per week to be diagnosed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but that doesn't mean there's not still a problem because any level of, you know, disorder, dysfunction with food is still distressing to the person. Yeah. And we see that these rates of disordered eating and full-blown eating disorders really exist across ethnic groups, across ages, across genders. Um, trans people are actually have the highest rates of eating disorders of any gender identity, and so even more so than cis women. And so really it's a, a problem across the board, it's just that it's only really seen and spotted in people who look one way, and that's really because of diet culture and weight stigma. It's because you know we think that the only person who can have a problem with is the thin. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I now know that there are people who are in larger bodies, much larger bodies, who are starving themselves yeah. and not emaciated by, you know, sort of stand, regular standards, but emaciated for them, for their body. And they're not getting the help they need. And actually, usually by the time those folks get into treatment, they're further gone. They're further down the, the road of a full-blown eating disorder and have a much harder time recovering. And that's all because of weight stigma, because weight stigma keeps them from getting the help they need in the first place. What is, I have so many questions for you. Um, I kind of want to go back real quick though, when you were talking about at NYU and how um, the processed food, like just knowing where your food comes from, because 
I want to know like how that can become problematic. Yeah. Because I I really care about where my food does come from, mm -hmm. right? But I want I that's one piece that. I'm still like really passionate about, but I also want to learn about how it could be a bad thing. Yeah, totally. I think it's, you know, knowing a little bit of that, I think can be fine, can, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be part of a disorder and can be part of someone's maybe political efforts to like help the environment, for example. Um, but I think it can easily get down this rabbit hole, like, you know, just as the other behaviors we were talking about where any sort of calorie restriction or macronutrient restriction or restriction on the time that you're eating or the type of food that you're eating has the potential to really take over your life. Mm -hmm. And it's no different with, you know, thinking about like, I only buy organic or sustainable. I mean, for me personally, like I spent hours in grocery stores when I was at my sickest, you know, reading. thinking like, do I, yeah, reading labels and thinking, do I get the you know, local one that is not organic, but is, you know, they use sustainable methods, or do I get the big, you know, factory farmed organic thing, but that's, you know, it's organic, it has the label, and, you know, the whole Michael Pollan thing of, like, eating local versus, um, you know, trying to support organic agriculture or trying to just, like, do my best in any situation where mm -hmm. there wasn't always an easy, sort of obvious option. Mm -hmm. um, so it can, it can, you know, I personally know and have lived experience of how it can be so debilitating to have that knowledge and to sort of obsess about that knowledge. And I've seen that in so many of my clients as well, people with orthorexia, which, yeah. you know, that's the sort of clinical term for what it sounds like we had, and I know Katie had as well, and she shared about that publicly, um, you know, where you, you, it's obsession with healthy eating, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think the sort of Michael Pollan, Marion Nestle style of eating, right, this idea of like knowing where your food comes from, knowing your farmer, um, being attentive to sustainability has the real potential to trigger orthorexia in people. Mm -hmm. And the other piece of it that I think is so problematic is that it's really tied up with weight stigma. So a lot of the basis of that movement comes from this idea that fast food, processed food, um, you know, factory produced food is responsible largely for the so-called obesity epidemic. And that really started around, um, the early 2000s with Eric Schlosser and his book Fast Food Nation yeah. I think kind of was the genesis of that mm -hmm. and then you know people like Mary Nessel Michael Pollan picked up on that um, Morgan Spurlock with his film Super Size Me right mm -hmm. so like it was very much in the zeitgeist in the early 2000s this idea of oh my god our food is killing us yeah. and it dovetailed nicely with a sort of emerging trend of calling so called obesity an epidemic mm -hmm. that actually didn't start until the late 1990s there was sort of this inflection point where that term was coined by a researcher at the CDC um, along with these maps that he released. You've probably seen those color-coded maps of like obesity rates across the United States, right? And suddenly those maps were everywhere. They were in the hands of journalists and academics and all these people who had, you know, positions of influence were talking about them. And that got in, that made its way into popular, liter popular literature like uh, Fast Food Nation, like Michael Pollan's work. And so really this idea that was not even, did not even exist prior to like the early 1990s yeah. suddenly took over our consciousness. Also the low carb craze, right? The Atkins thing that was happening, I think sort it made of made it worse. Yeah. It fit in nicely with that too, because we had just seen, you know, the, the trend, the transition from low fat to low carb came with a lot of confusion, I think, for people because it had always been low fat yeah. right, for most of people's lifetimes or, you know, the time that they were paying attention from the 70s onward, really mm -hmm. the 60s um, through the 90s or to the mid-90s was, you know, low fat was the thing. 
And then suddenly all this supposed nutrition knowledge was upended by this new research or, you know, really new people talking about low carbohydrate diets, not necessarily a lot of scientific research, but then the scientific research followed. Um, saying that, you know, low carb was better. And so I think a lot of people had a lot of confusion about nutrition, you know, knowledge, nutrition as a science. Like, yeah. do I even listen to people, you know, nutritionists? Like, who, who's to say what's healthy? Mm-hmm. And so I think the Michael Pollans of the world came in at that time and really gave people this wholesale alternative, which was like, yeah, you don't have to pay attention to what these um, government agencies are telling you is the right macronutrient to eat or avoid, you can actually just think about where your food comes from and think about, you know, whole foods and plant-based foods as kind of the basis of your diet rather than thinking about macronutrients. So it really, I don't think it, it ever would have been possible for that moment to happen and to get us to this like moment in wellness culture that we have now if it weren't for all those roots kind of being in place already. Yeah, that makes sense. Everyone just kind of got so confused and then we ended up going the route of, I would say all of us kind of Michael Pollan, but then keep learning and then now all of a sudden everyone's keto, which is like the same as Atkins, which is just ridiculous. Which goes back to the 1860s, (laughs) by the way, like the first low carb diet on record or that, you know, was a popular low carb diet was in 1865 by this guy named William Banting. And it was like, it's the same shit under under a different name, you know, different packaging. And new like added or new like sugar substitutes. Exactly. (laughs) So crazy. So um, as far as orthorexia goes, since yeah, we're talking about I had it definitely, um, and we were we all have an experience with it. But I would say, listening to your story and knowing Katie's, that we've all also had an experience with having an eating disorder prior to this. Mm-hmm. So is that someone who's more susceptible to having orthorexia? Because like to give you a little bit of an idea, I'm putting on um, a conference called Unwell. I think you've heard about it. I really wanted you on, but you're so busy. Um, And the whole idea around it is thinking about why are we so obsessed with perfection as a society? And how is it that with this like boom in the wellness industry, um, why are we taking it to the extreme? So because like we all want to be well, but really it all goes back to like being thin and like always being our best version, um, which is great until you take it way too far. But um, some of the panelists that I've spoken to that are really excited about it, I would say like 75% of them that have had this experience have also had eating disorders. So I think it's great that we're sharing this information and I'm sure there are a lot of people that have eating disorders that are now um, doing things in the name of wellness. So it's important, but I'm just curious, do you think that orthorexia is something that someone who didn't previously have an eating disorder, like they could also... Um, be susceptible to it. Totally. I mean, I think orthorexia is an eating disorder unto itself, Mm -hmm. but orthorexia is also kind of a style of behavior. You know, Mm -hmm. you can have orthorexic behaviors without having, and it's not even a clinical diagnosis yet. It's not in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual yet. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of based on like the best available scientific criteria for diagnosing orthorexia. Um, But actually there's some talk in the scientific community about whether it better fits under an existing eating disorder diagnosis or whether it needs to have its own diagnosis. 
And, but you know, to me really the point is like, I was never actually diagnosed with an eating disorder. I just now can look back with the knowledge I have and say, oh, I was diagnosable at this point in time, mm -hmm. right? But I think the thing is with a lot of people who have disordered eating, it ebbs and flows. And so there's maybe a point in time when they are diagnosable, when they're doing the behaviors, you know, it's like whatever, two or three times a week for two months at a time, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, there's times in people's lives when they would fit those criteria and the times when they wouldn't. And so a lot of people are not diagnosed when they maybe are diagnosable at a certain point in their life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are just never diagnosed because they never have that quite you know, threshold, like they don't, they do it once a week or they do it, you know, for short bursts, not like continuously or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I would say that any level of, you know, restricting, binging, purge, I mean, binging is sort of a separate category because actually that's, um, biologically beneficial for people who've been restricted. So I wouldn't demonize binging across the board. I know it's distressing as a behavior, but it's actually really um, a response to deprivation. And so yeah. it's your body trying to take care of you. But if you're binging, it really signals that there's an underlying restriction or deprivation going on there, maybe some history of food insecurity or something else that you need to address in your life. So, you know, any amount of binging signifies that, but any amount of restriction, any amount of purging, any amount of overexercise or medication abuse or any other ways of, you know, compensating for your food um, are a problem no matter how often you do them. Mm -hmm. And so I think especially for people in larger bodies who don't tend to get diagnosed as frequently, I say it doesn't really matter whether you have a diagnosis or not. If you are distressed and you're suffering in your relationship with food, you have a problem. Yeah. And there's evidence showing that 75% of women, but you know, women between the ages I think of 25 and 45, have some form of disordered eating or a full-blown eating disorder. It's like 10% had full-blown criteria, and that's way more than are actually diagnosed. And then wow. an additional 65% had just you know subclinical disordered eating. So that's. The vast majority of us, right? Yeah. You know, and, it, and we know that the rates of eating disorders are higher in the trans community. So I'd be willing to bet that the rates of just, you know, cl subclinical disordered eating are also higher in the trans community. And even in cisgender men, there's a lot more eating disorders happening now and disordered eating in the name of like wellness, right? Yeah. We have people doing intermittent fasting. We have people doing keto and becoming obsessed in those ways too and doing things that are really harmful to their body. So I think everyone's at risk, honestly, and everyone, you know, probably is already suffering from it. One thing that I sort of, you know, my working thesis for doing my podcast in the first place was like, everybody's relationship with food is a little messed up. And yeah. That's really what I found in, you know, 200 <laughs> episodes is that not necessarily now, because a lot of people I talk to now have done their own work to recover like mm -hmm. I have, but like at some point, most of us go through a problematic period in our relationship with food. That's so sad, but also makes me really happy for conversations like this and people like you that are really at the forefront of it. And um, also, I'm curious, like, I remember I always, and I'm sure as a society, this is a general thing, and generalizing, but I feel that people just... Um, generalize that people in larger bodies are lazy and they just I have so many ideas about like they're not productive and they're that way for a certain reason so I'm just curious um what you think about that oh yeah I mean that's total bullshit like mm -hmm. first and foremost that is that's prejudice yeah know? that's um, prejudice that comes out of diet culture and it's really interesting I sort of trace the history of this in my book but we didn't think those things about people in larger bodies 
at all as a society really until the 1800s or so. And that's when things started to, to shift when diet culture as we know it today started to take root. And so, you know, it was partly because of actually racist and sexist ideals about how bodies were supposed to look that really served the people in power, right? So like slavery was going strong and there was an attempt to justify slavery by any means necessary, right? Come up with reasons why, um, you know, these people over here are subhuman and we can enslave them versus these people over here are human and we give them rights. Mm -hmm. And the... um, idea of like the great chain of being sort of came out of the, the 1700s where it was like a hierarchy of you know with basically black people sub-saharan african people at the bottom so slavery was justified mm-hmm. um and like surprise surprise white northern european men were at the top mm-hmm. and white northern european women were a step down and then everyone else was a step down you know on the rungs of the ladder And around the 1800s, they started to marry that idea of the great chain of being with new theories about evolution that were coming out. And, um, you know, this idea of, like, people in this uh, area of the world tend to be larger bodied and they're more recently evolved. They're less evolved than the people in this other area of the world who are thinner. And so it really came out of these racist ideas, this racist hierarchy of bodies um, that started to demonize fatness, and that's where the roots of fat phobia are. There's a really great book on this called um, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial mm-hmm. Origins of Fat Phobia by Sabrina Strings. Had her on my podcast, and it was just my time to, that. yeah, it's wow. fascinating. So, and that drives people, I mean, to get things like surgery, like, um, what's it called, mm-hmm. gastro? Gastric bypass. Gastric yeah. bypass. What do you think about that? It's really harmful. It's, it's really so dangerous. Intense. Yeah, it's really dangerous. I mean, for anyone who's listening to this or watching this who has had it, I don't want to shame you or yeah. you know, make anyone think that they're bad for having chosen to do this. I get the immense pressure on people to do this, and oftentimes doctors will apply that pressure in part because they make a bajillion dollars off of it. I th- you know, it's like tens of thousands of dollars each time they perform this surgery, so it's financially very lucrative for them. And there's the pharmaceutical industry involved as well and the medical devices and all of it. Like, there's so much pressure on people to perform and and do this surgery. And look a certain way. And so then for their families, even from their families, Yes, absolutely. And people are told things like, you know, this is your only chance to watch your kids grow up. And if this is a life-saving surgery. And so, of course, they're going to want to, you know, do something to save their life and make themselves, like, able to see their kids grow up and things like that. But I want to just say to anyone who's gone through that or anyone who's considering it, that is false rhetoric. Like that is, it's the supposed benefits of bariatric surgery are very trumped up and the actual harms and potential risks of it are far greater than anyone's going to tell you, any bariatric surgeon is going to tell you. And so what they don't tell you is that, you know, even if you don't have the most severe complication, which is death, oftentimes people will live with terrible, debilitating stomach issues, um, uh, you know, nutrient deficiencies that can cause things like neurological malfunction, you know, problems that last the rest of your life. Um, you can have things like, you know, the sort of most, the mildest um, complications are things like dumping syndrome, which is about oh, as appealing God. as it sounds. Oh, it's where oh, you um, just like go to the bathroom, right? Basically, oh, you're, you're, the food just goes right through you because it doesn't really have anywhere to be digested. And so you end up with chronic diarrhea, you can end up with vomiting. And there's also a lot of like blood sugar issues that happen with that, where you can suddenly have you know, sweating and shaking and nausea, dizziness, and you never know when it's going to strike. And this can happen to people for, you know, 
dozens of years out from their surgery. So it's not, you know, this is a lifelong thing. And same with the nutrient deficiencies. People have to take these intense supplements for the rest of their lives and oftentimes are very, very expensive. Insurance doesn't always cover it. People don't always know because their doctors don't always tell them what they should be taking. And so oftentimes people end up with these really terrible nutrient deficiencies that cause a lot more harm than if, you know, the, the stomach is an organ that is supposed to be there and mm -hmm. amputating a healthy stomach really is a terrible thing to do and you know people in larger bodies can actually live really wonderful um, healthy lives they can do things that are health promoting no matter what their size is and figure out ways to take care of themselves in any size body and I know from someone with thin privilege you know hearing that is probably like yeah what do you know mm -hmm. I know that I have that privilege and I have dozens and dozens of colleagues in much larger bodies in my community who are doing this work, who've been doing this work for decades, and you know, clients that I've worked with in larger bodies who've had amazing experiences of health at every size, you know, just really learning to take care of their bodies without weight loss, without pursuing weight loss or orthorexic, you know, dieting behaviors um, that are able to accept themselves and love their bodies as they are, at least, you know, peace with their bodies or respect their bodies if they're not able to get to body love. And so it really is possible for people of all sizes. Wow. So as far as becoming an anti-diet registered dietitian, that's a certification that you've created and that you also train others? Or? So no, it's not a certification yet. I mean, maybe yeah. one day. Uh, with Makes the book, sense. The book being mean. called Anti-Diet, I definitely think there's probably going to be a lot of you know bandwagon hopping, bandwagon hopping mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, and that comes out, but yeah, so right now, you know, that's sort of a term that I use and a lot of people in my community use just to signify like, yeah, the word diet is in the name of my profession and that's problematic, but I am actually not, I don't subscribe to diet culture, I'm anti-diet, I'm not going to put you on a diet, I'm not going to tell you to lose weight, I'm, you know, on your side and fighting weight stigma. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I train other professionals in this um, way of working, I train other people on, you know, work, using intuitive eating in their practice. Um, marketing themselves as intuitive eating and health at every size professionals. Um, I also train media organizations, which is something that's really interesting because I think you know a lot of media writing about this topic or covering covering health, covering nutrition, often do it in a really disordered way, yeah, right? And, and so many of them, I know from my own experience, I was a journalist with a platform covering all this stuff, you know, struggling mightily behind the scenes and telling people very disordered things about how they should be eating. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to train media and just first how to look at themselves and sort of recognize what's going on in their own relationships with food and also what the science actually says about how people can actually pursue health at any size, that health doesn't require weight loss or cutting out all kinds of different foods. And, you know, as journalists, we don't learn how to read research. I didn't learn how to read research until I was in graduate school for public health, nutrition, and, and dietetics, so I get how challenging it is. So that's kind of a big, um, uh, you know, part of my work and sort of piece of my heart these days is training people in the media, training other healthcare professionals as well to do less harm when they're working with people. That's so exciting and so important, especially in today's world. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing that. That's huge. And your book is yes. coming out very soon. Very soon, yeah. As we're recording this, I think it'll be about three and a half months. So wow. very exciting. In January or? In December. December. So they moved it up to December 24th mm -hmm. um, to have it be on shelves That's for like so the great. New Year New You display.
displays, which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hopefully it'll be, you know, people can actually even get it if they have want to get a last minute Christmas gift, they can order the book and, and it'll, arrive. Um, it'll be there. Yeah. Or if you pre-order it, hopefully it'll arrive right on the publication date. So. And what are some of the things that you cover in there? Are you, I'm assuming it's all about like empowering people to... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's so yeah, I cover, you know, the history of diet culture, what diet culture is and sort of how we got here and then how it harms you, all the, all the ways that it steals your time, your money, your well-being, your happiness, and then how you can take those things back, how you can reclaim your life through intuitive eating, health at every size, and just learning to accept your body, be a part of a body liberation movement, um, and creating a community that supports you in doing that. That's so beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment or review, and share with your friends. I'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you, so keep in touch, and I'll see you next time.